0: is Risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Amen. Please have a seat. <clears throat> After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Each of the four Gospel writers tells the story of the Resurrection a little differently. All of them proclaim with great joy that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And in each of them, the life-changing message is first told to women. But each evangelist emphasizes different details to show what the Resurrection means. And there's a lot of richness in those details. So who are these women Matthew tells us about? And why have they come to the tomb of Jesus? Mary Magdalene is known from ancient times as the first witness to the resurrection. She's in every gospel account, sometimes alone and sometimes with companions, in this case, one companion. But who is the other Mary? Some scholars think she's actually Jesus' mother, identified elsewhere in Matthew by her other two sons, James and Joseph, who Matthew says are Jesus' brothers. Or maybe maybe she's someone that everybody in Matthew's community knew. Or she's every woman, every disciple. All of us who have followed Jesus as faithfully as we know how and try to show up at a horrible time. Matthew tells us earlier that these two women, along with others, followed Jesus from Galilee and provided for him. So they are the practical, logistical supporters of his ministry and faithful friends. They keep vigil at the cross. When the male disciples have fled, they stand at a distance because violence can so easily erupt in the midst of a public execution. Also, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite as Joseph of Arimathea buried the body of Jesus in his own tomb and rolled the stone in place and went away. So now they come to see the tomb, although they've seen it already. They do not come bearing spices to anoint Jesus' body, as in some other gospel accounts, nor do they explicitly come to mourn. Scholar Warren Carter provocatively suggests that these faithful women who have accompanied Jesus with such devotion listened to his teaching and experienced his powerful ministry, may just remember that he said that he must suffer and then on the third day be raised. Maybe they've come expecting to see God work. I don't know that I would go so far as to say they're expecting, but maybe they've come because despite their terrible grief, Despite the loss of their eager dreams for the coming of God's reign, maybe there's a spring of hope in their hearts, a wondering, an openness and a curiosity about what God may yet do, even though they have no idea what it might be. Maybe they come to see the tomb just so they can be as present as they know how with all of it. They want to show up and be as near to Jesus as they can be. One thing they do expect is that the tomb is under guard. Matthew says the powers of empire were worried that there might be an attempt to steal Jesus' body and claim a miracle. Even in death, he's a threat to this all-pervasive crucifying power. The tombs of martyrs are often rallying places for revolution, after all, and Jesus' message of the coming reign of God is indeed a threat to the power and order of Rome, though not in the way the Romans think. It's his message and ministry, his way of being and living, his love that is a threat. And in that love is the power of God, an entirely different type of power, grounded in vulnerability and self-giving, the subversive, tenacious, unquenchable power that raises Jesus from the dead and vindicates his ministry and message. So the guards are posted and the tomb is sealed by Roman edict. It certainly looks solid and impermeable. Think. Police line do not cross except in concrete. So Matthew emphasizes that in the words of Bill Wiley Kellerman, the resurrection is illegal. It's transgressive. It upends the order imposed by the powers of domination and death. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake. Talk about upending. The very earth moves in response to God's resurrecting power. But this is not the only earthquake in Matthew who really likes dramatic special effects in his resurrection account. The Gospel uses the same Greek word, seo, to shake, to describe how Jesus destabilizes the holy city when he enters on Palm Sunday. In the translation of scholar Angela Parker, the whole city was shook. Even more pointedly, after Jesus dies, a great earthquake tears the curtain of the temple from top to bottom, suggesting, as Amy Jill Levine teaches, the rending of God's own garments in the ritual of grief and the rending of God's heart in the experience of unspeakable sorrow and loss. What's more, as the earth shakes, folks who have died are seen alive in the city. What has been long buried, and not only Jesus, can no longer be kept safely contained and out of sight. Long settled patterns are shaken up. The whole death-dealing order of violence and punishment our addiction to weapons and accumulation and control, the violation and abuse of the natural world, the othering and exclusion of our vulnerable kin. This geologic cosmic shaking underlines that resurrection is not only a human event. It's for the whole community of creation. These are what Paul elsewhere calls birth pangs, of the new creation, as the natural world also yearns and groans and trembles towards healing and liberation. Everything that corrupts and destroys the creatures of God, as our baptismal promises say, has to be shaken up on a personal level that includes our cynicism and our despair, our shame, our fear that we are not and cannot and do not deserve to be loved. Resurrection destabilizes all of it, and maybe fear most of all. Don't be afraid, so says the angel who arrives like another cosmological event. Their appearance, for surely angels, are beyond any gender binary and must use they, them pronouns. Their appearance was like lightning. For fear of the angel, the guards shake and fall down like dead men. And there they remain for the rest of our story. The power that sent them paid them to represent and keep Roman order collapses in terror. It understands nothing but domination, and something utterly different is here. The angel rolls away the stone, seemingly with no effort at all, and nonchalantly sits on it. They speak to the women. Do not be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he told you. Come, see the place where he lay, and then go directly and tell his disciples. He has been raised from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Even before the quake, the tomb is empty. Jesus is up on the third day, loose in the world. To riff on Gil Scott Heron, the resurrection has not been televised. It happens in the deepest darkness and silent mystery of God. We are not told how it happens, but we experience the impact. It causes us to tremble, maybe even more than the terrible events of Friday past. It shakes our assumptions about how the world is and who we are in it. It addresses our deepest anxieties. Do not be afraid, says the angel. The women leave with fear and great joy, fear and joy together. The fear is partly of the crucifying powers and the violence often especially directed at women. But I think they experience another fear that is more akin to awe, trembling in their bones and in their souls at the wild, weird wonder of God. I can imagine them saying, it makes us shake and laugh and cry all at once. We saw Jesus die a horrible death in public. And he was certainly very dead. Our dearest hopes died with him. Who can dare to believe this message? And yet, yet the angel said that the God we came to know when we were with Jesus, the God who blesses the poor and the meek and the grieving, the God who blesses the peacemakers and the justice strivers, God with us in every part of our lives, this God has raised up Jesus and in so doing has raised us up out of our hopelessness and grief. God has turned our mourning into dancing and set us on our way in haste. Yes, fear remains, but fear is infused and encompassed with an even greater joy. Often we experience fear and joy together when we embark on a great new venture, an important relationship, responding to a sense of call, welcoming a child, But Easter joy also sustains our souls in the face of intransigent evil and pain, as well as ordinary doubt and discouragement. Scholar Willie Jennings says, I look at joy as an act of resistance against despair and its forces. It's a gift and a choice, not simple happiness, something deeper and less transient. It's sustained in community. The women draw strength not only from the angelic message, but also from each other. Cole Arthur Riley writes, there is so much worthy of lament, of rage. But joy situates every emotion within itself. It holds them all and keeps anyone from swallowing us whole. Easter joy is paradoxical. It undergirds life in all its complexity. It's grounded in the unceasing goodness of God. It sustains us in suffering, opens us to hope, readies us, and blesses restoration when it comes. It stirs us to witness, to witness to love that is stronger than death, and God's vindication of Jesus who was raised after being crucified because he threatened the world's imperial order by preaching nonviolence, solidarity with the most vulnerable, radical welcome, and unbounded mercy. The resurrection testifies to the truth of Jesus' message. So the women run to tell. And on the way, they meet Jesus. Unlike in other gospel accounts, they recognize him right away. Jesus greets them, and they fall at his feet in adoration. It's not surprising that they can't stand up. So shaken are they by the sweetness of this reunion with their friend and teacher who they never thought to see again. The earth holds them, and they hold Jesus' feet. After a time, he speaks to them. Again, don't be afraid. Not of loss and not of loving. Not of grief and discouragement, nor of daring to hope. Not even of the crucifying powers. Easter joy is based in the wild truth of God's God's unstoppable and faithful love. It holds you always, even when you cannot feel it. Go, says Jesus, and tell my brothers, which surely includes sisters too, since women have been with him all along, tell them to go to Galilee. They will see me there. That's where we will see Jesus also, in our Galilees, in our places of ordinary work and love, the places of aching need and unfinished business. Let's face it, Galilee is far from the seats of power. It's a forgotten backwater, home of people who are often mistreated and disregarded. The risen Christ is there, out in front of us and urging us on. Christ is in the least of his sisters and brothers, and also in the work of hope, of justice and mercy, We will be surprised by her sudden presence when we follow, when we share in the witness and the work of resurrection. So, beloveds, what shall we take from this story this Easter morning? First, an invitation to come and see to show up with all that is in our hearts, the grief and the loss, and the dreams and the hope, and the glimmers of faith, and especially curiosity. Come, see what God may do. Second, a shaking. The gospel shakes us up and shakes us loose from old expectations, false allegiances, and cynical despair. Let it open you to the resurrecting power of God that vibrates in our every cell and in the very earth, upending every oppressive power. We too are called to shake up the deadening orders of our own day. You know what I'm talking about. White supremacy, disdain for women's bodies and choices, gun worship, addiction to fossil fuels, just to name a few. May we get into what blessed John Lewis called good trouble as we shake things loose. And in that shaking, may we find joy, the joy of God's presence, the subversive grace that raised Jesus from the dead. May we find the joy of holy love that makes and claims, sustains, and calls us, raises us with Jesus, and accompanies us into the world. May we find the joy of participating in resurrection and meeting Jesus on the way. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Amen.